Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Welcome, you epic peeps. Today I'm continuing your Scottish tales of haunted ships, where we'll cover the last story off with the tale of the elves at the time trying to lure and trick a man's wife into joining them in the far, far fey world. And they would have succeeded if the husband had nay stood firm and protested to his wife at leaving his side. The lexicon of these Scottish tales are tricky, so I'm hoping you lovelies can keep up with this tale because it's really, really such a good old-fashioned folk story. And it was written in 1899. Talk about holding up. And the second half of this episode is an old-time radio episode of none other than Sherlock Holmes' adventures with the ever-awesome Watson, your tale being titled Second Generation. Now, in this episode, we're going to see not one twist, but multiple twists. I wonder if you can spot them, mates. Even I was fooled halfway through. It was like two red herrings. Anyway, I won't ruin it for you, trust me. Now turn up the lights, get super cozy, and let's me and you share a story for two. Enjoy. Oh, father, said his granddaughter Barbara, ye surely wrong poor old Mary Moray. What use could it be to an old woman like her, who has no wrongs to redress, no malice to work out against mankind, and nothing to seek of enjoyment save a canny hour and a quiet grave? What use could the fellowship of fiends and the communion of evil spirits be to her? I know Jenny Primrose puts Rowan Tree above the door head when she sees old Mary coming. I know the good wife at Kittlenacket wears Rowan Berry leaves in the headband of her blue kirtle, and all for the sake of averting the unsonsy glance of Mary's right eye. And I know that the old laird of Burton Troutwater drives his seven cows to their pasture with a wand of witch tree to keep Mary from milking them. But what has all that to do with haunted shallops, visionary marinas, and bottomless boats? I have heard myself as pleasant a tale about the haunted ships and their unworldly crews as any one would wish to hear in a winter evening. It was told to me by young Benji Marchig, one summer night, sitting on Abergland Bank. The lad intended a sort of love meeting, but all that he could talk of was about smearing sheep and shearing sheep, and of the wife which the Norway elves of the haunted ships made for his uncle Sandy Marchig. And I shall tell ye the tale as the honest lad told it to me. Ye surely wrong poor old Mary Moray. What use could it be to an old woman like her, who has no wrongs to redress, no malice to work out against mankind, and nothing to seek of enjoyment save a canny hour and a quiet grave? What use could the fellowship of fiends and the communion of evil spirits be to her? Alexander Marchick, besides being the laird of three acres of peat moss, two kale gardens, and the owner of seven gold milk cows, a pair of horses, and six pet sheep, was the husband of one of the handsomest women in the seven parishes. Many a lad sighed the day he was brided, and a Nithsdale laird, and two Annandale moorland farmers drank themselves to their last linen, as well as their last shilling, through sorrow for her loss. But married was the dame, and home she was carried, to bear rule over her home and her husband, as an honest woman should. Now you moon can 
that though the flesh and blood lovers of Alexander's bonny wife all ceased to love and to sue her after she became another's, there were certain admirers who did not consider their claim at all abated, or their hopes lessened by the Kirk's famous obstacle of matrimony. Ye have heard how the devout minister of Tinwald had a fair son carried away and wedded against his liking to an unchristened bride, whom the elves and the fairies provided. Ye have heard how the bonny bride of the drunken laird of Sukidup was stolen by the fairies out at the back window of the bridal chamber, the time the bridegroom was groping his way to the chamber door, and ye have heard. But why need I multiply cases? Such things in the ancient days were as common as candlelight, so ye'll no hinder certain water elves and sea fairies, who sometimes keep festival and summer mirth in these old haunted hulks, from falling in love with the wheel ford wife of Laird Marchig, and to their plots and contrivances they went how they might accomplish to sunder man and wife, and sundering such a man and such a wife was like sundering the green leaf from the summer, or the fragrance from the flower. So it fell on a time that Laird Marchig took his half-net on his back, and his still spear in his hand, and down to Blahooly Bay gaed he, and into the water he went right between the two haunted hulks, and placing his net awaited the coming of the tide. The night ye mourn ken was murk and the wind lone, and the singing of the increasing waters amongst the shells and the pebbles was heard for sundry miles. All at once light began to glance, and twinkle on board the two haunted ships from every hole and seam, and presently the sound as of a hatchet employed in squaring timber echoed far and wide. But if the toil of these unearthly workmen amazed the laird, how much more was his amazement increased when a sharp shrill voice called out, Ho, brother, what are you doing now? A voice still shriller responded from the other haunted ship, I'm making a wife to Sandy Marching. And a loud, quavering laugh running from ship to ship and from bank to bank told the joy they expected from their labor. Now the laird, besides being a devout and God-fearing man, was shrewd and bold, and in plot and contrivance and skill in conducting his designs was fairly an overmatch for any dozen land elves. But the water elves are far more subtle. Besides their haunts and their dwellings being in the great deep, Pursuit and detection is hopeless if they succeed in carrying their prey to the waves. But ye shall hear, home, flew the laird, collected his family around the hearth, spoke of the signs and the sins of the times, and talked of mortification and prayer for averting calamity. And, finally, taking his father's Bible, brass clasps, black print, and covered with calfskin from the shelf, he proceeded without let or stint to perform domestic worship. I should have told you that he bolted and locked the door, shut up all inlet to the house, threw salt into the fire, and proceeded in every way like a man skillful in guarding against the plot of fairies and fiends. His wife looked on all this with wonder, but she saw something in her husband's looks that hindered her from intruding either question or advice, and a wise woman was she. Near the mid-hour of the night, the rush of a horse's feet was heard, and the sound of a rider leaping from its back and a heavy knock came to the door, accompanied by a voice saying, The comer drinks hot, 
and the knave Bian is expected at Laid Lorry's tonight. Say, mount, good wife, and come. Preserve me, said the wife of Sandy Marchig. That's news indeed. Who could have thought it? The laird has been airless for seventeen years. Now, Sandy, my man, fetch me my skirt and hood. But he laid his arm round his wife's neck and said, If all the layers in Galloway go airless, over this door threshold shall you not stir tonight. And I have said, and I have sworn it, seek not to know why or wherefore, but, Lord, send us thy blessed moonlight. The wife looked for a moment in her husband's eyes and desisted from further entreaty. But let us send a civil message to the gossips, Sandy, and had nay ye better say, Say your laid, with a sudden sickness, though it's sinful like to send the poor messenger a mile agate, with a lie in his mouth without a glass of brandy. To such a messenger, and to those who sent him, no apology is needed, said the austere laird. So let him depart. And the clatter of horses' hooves was heard, and the muttered imprecautions of its rider on the churlish treatment he had experienced. Now, Sandy, my lad, said his wife, laying an arm particularly white and round about his neck as she spoke. Are you not a queer man, and a stern? I have been your wedded wife now these three years, and, besides my dower, have brought you three as bonny barns as ever smiled aneath a summer sun. Oh, man, you are douce man, and fitter to be an elder than even Willie Greer himself. I have the minister's ain word for it. To put on these hard-hearted looks and gang-waving your arms that way, as if ye said, I winna take the counsel of sick as hempy as you. I am your ain leal wife, and will and mourn have an explanation. To all this Sandy Marchig replied, It is written, Wives obey your husbands, but we have been stayed in our devotion, so let us pray. And down he knelt, his wife knelt also. For she was as devout as Bonnie, and beside them knelt their household, and all lights were extinguished. Now this beats a, muttered his wife to herself. However, I shall be obedient for a time, but if I did nay ken what all this is for, before the morn be sunk at time, my tongue is nay longer a tongue, nor my hands worth wearing. The voice of her husband in prayer interrupted this mental soliloquy and ardently did he beseech to be preserved from the wiles of the fiend and the snares of Satan, from which ghosts, goblins, elves, fairies, spunkies, and water kelpies, from the spectre chaloupe of Solway, from spirits visible and invisible, from the haunted ships and their unearthly tenants, from maritime spirits that plotted against godly men, and fell in love with their wives. Nay, but his presence be near us, said his wife, in a low tone of dismay. God guide my good man's wits. I never heard such a prayer from human lips before. But, Sandy, my man, Lord's sake rise. What fearful light is this? Barn and briar and stable morn be in a blaze, and hawky and hurly-doddy and cherry and damselplum will be smored with reek and scorched with flame. And a flood of light, but not so gross as a commoner fire, which ascended to heaven and filled all the court before the house, Amplify, justify the good's wife's suspicions. But to the terrors of fire, Sandy was as immovable as he was to the imaginary groans of the barren wife of Laid Lorry, and he held his wife and threatened to the weight of his right hand. 
and it was a heavy one, to all who ventured abroad or even unbolted the door. The neighing and prancing of horses and the billowing of cows augmented the horrors of the night, and to any of one whom only heard the din, it seemed that the whole onstead was in blaze, and horses and cattle perishing in the flame. All whiles common or extraordinary were put into practice to entice or force the honest farmer and his wife to open the door. And when the like success attended every new stratagem, silence for a little while ensued, and a long, loud, and shrilling laugh wound up the dramatic efforts of the night. In the morning, when Laird Marchig went to the door, he found standing against one of the pilasters a piece of black ship oak, rudely fashioned into something like human form, and which skilful people declared would have been clothed with seeming flesh and blood and palmed upon him by elfin adroitness for his wife, had he admitted his visitants. A synod of wise men and women sat upon the woman of timber, and she was finally ordered to be devoured by fire, and that in the open air. A fire was soon made, and into it the elfin sculpture was tossed from the prongs of two pairs of pitchforks. The blaze that arose was awful to behold, and hissing, and burstings and loud cracklings and strange noises were heard in the midst of the flame, and when the hole sank into ashes, a drinking cup of some precious metal was found, and this cup, fashioned no doubt by elfin skill, but rendered harmless by the purification with fire, the sons and daughters of Sandy Marchig and his wife drink out of it to this very day. Bless all bold men, say I, and Obedient wives. Come in, come in, come in. Oh, there you are, Mr. Bartell. Good evening, Doctor. Oh, no, no, don't get up. You, you look much too comfortable. <laughs> Take off your overcoat and, and come and join me. Well, I enjoyed your story of a scandal in Bohemia last week, Doctor, and tonight you promised us a sequel. Yes, that's right, Mr. Bartell. A sequel that took place over 20 years afterwards, in 1909, to be exact. Sherlock Holmes was living on his Sussex bee farm. It was only in June, I remember, that I received a telegram from the great man asking me to come and spend a long weekend with him. And I'm sure you needed no urging to accept the invitation. None, Mr. Bartell, none at all. I hadn't seen Holmes for some time, and this fact, combined with my rather indifferent health, found me on the Eastbourne train a few hours after receiving the telegram. A dog cart was at the station to meet me, and after a brisk drive across the downs, I found myself once more with my good friend. He looked somewhat older than when I'd last seen him, but as he spoke to me, I realized from the keenness of his voice and the sparkle in his eye that Sherlock Holmes would never really be old. After a while, our conversation lapsed into the comfortable silence that can just on me exist only between friends. And then, as the sun was setting, Holmes picked up his beloved violin and began to play some haunting melody. As he lay back, eyes half-closed, his long, thin fingers caressing the instrument, a wave of nostalgia swept over me. I thought of the many years that, that we'd spent together and of the exciting adventures that we had shared during the old days in Baker Street. Beautiful. Quite beautiful. Thank you, Watson. <clears throat> you look uncommonly wistful, dear chap. 
You thinking of the old days? Yes, Holmes. I was. So was I. Uh-huh. Oh, well. Those were exciting times, but it's comforting to think that now we will not be disturbed by a dangling doorbell followed shortly by some poor devil in trouble. Nowadays, my greatest excitements are connected with the segregation of the Queen Bee and the nighttime proclivities of Charles Augustus, my tomcat. <laughs> I still find it hard to think of you in retirement, Holmes. Do you ever consider returning to active practice? Oh, I consider it occasionally and then reject the idea. I mentioned work only up to the peak of his ability. I'm past mine. Nonsense, Holmes. You're just alert as ever you were. Mentally, perhaps, but not physically. Would, uh, would you consider handling a small problem <clears throat> in... Uh... In England? With personal problem that affects you, my dear chap, you know I'll do anything I can. Well, it's not exactly my problem, Holmes, but there was a charming uh, young girl on the train. We we got into conversation and... Uh... You don't age it in a real chap. You're just as susceptible as ever. Oh, no, 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 Holmes, let me finish. She said that you knew her mother quite well. Her mother? Come in. Oh, yes, Devers, what is it? I'm sorry to disturb you, Mr. Holmes. Your man said I might come in. Uh, my master, Mr. Little Stanley, instructed me to deliver this note. Oh, thank you. He uh, also instructed me to wait for a reply. What confounded impudence. You can tell your master that there's no answer to this letter. But he told me I must get a reply. You can tell Mr. Little Stanley that I will instruct my solicitors to reply to his message in due course. Uh, but, sir... That's all, Devers. You may go. Very good. What did the note say, Holmes? <laughs> Read it for yourself. Keep your filthy bees where they belong. One of my guests was stung yesterday. If this happens again, I'll have the police run you out of this place. Good Lord, what an offensive letter. The man himself is even more offensive. He's a retired manufacturer who thinks that his immense wealth entitles him to domineer over the local residents. Oh, but let's not spoil a nice sunny afternoon by discussing him. Please continue with the story of the young lady that you met on the train. Yes, I'd like to. Poor little thing seems in dreadful trouble. I... I do wish you would help her. You say that she told you uh, her mother knew me? Yes. What's her name? Norton. I mean in Norton. Norton? I don't seem to recall. Oh, but of course. Where is the girl, Watson? She's staying at the Red Lion in the village. Then ring her on the telephone and ask her to come over here as fast as she can. Of course I'll help her. I'm delighted, Holmes, but uh, what made you change your mind so suddenly? Uh, your memory's so short that you can't remember Irene Adler. Surely you haven't forgotten that in the case you called a scandal in Bohemia, I was completely fooled by her. I do, yes, of course. You always referred to her as the woman. But how does Irene Norton fit into the picture? Irene Adler married a barrister named Geoffrey Norton. Tell Miss Norton to come at once, Watson. She is the daughter of the woman. Mr. Holmes, I've heard so much about you from Mother. She says you're the cleverest man in England. <laughs> Your mother flatters me, my dear child. She herself was much more clever than I. In fact, it... uh, yes. <laughs> did she ever tell you about the uh, the circumstances under which we met? No, Mr. Holmes, though she did tell me that you were a witness when she and my father were married. <laughs> yeah, very true, my dear, very true. Though the occasion was a little, uh, well, shall we say, unusual. Look here. This uh, golden sovereign I wear on my watch chain is a memento of that day. I also have a charming photograph of your mother. You must have known her quite well. <clears throat> How about telling Mr. Holmes about your troubles, my nephew? Yes. Reminiscences are charming, but they can wait until we've dealt with your problems. Mr. Holmes, I'm being blackmailed. Oh, I'm sorry to hear it. Uh, by whom? By a neighbor of yours, Mr. Lytton Stanley. Do you know him? 
Oh, yes. Yes, indeed I do. As a matter of fact, Mr. Holmes received a most offensive note from the gentleman less than an hour ago. Uh, what hold does Mr. Stanley have over you, my dear? He has some letters, some rather indiscreet letters of mine that I wrote to a friend of his last year. How did he obtain these letters, Miss Norton? He must have stolen them. I don't know how, but when I was staying at his house a few weeks ago, he told me that he had them and asked 5,000 pounds for their return. Gracious me. And um, why should he consider your letters, even indiscreet letters, worth so large a sum? <laughs> I'm engaged to be married to Lord Weston's son. That awful man that Stanley knows that if my fiancé saw the letters, the marriage would never take place. They must be extremely compromising. Oh, they aren't, really. But I was much younger when I wrote them. In fact, I was only 17, and I'm afraid they could easily be misconstrued. Have you told your mother? Oh, no, she'd never understand. Hmm. She might surprise you on that score, I think. <laughs> how about your father? Daddy's a barrister. You can imagine how straightless he'd be about the whole thing. That's why I came to you, Mr. Holmes. Oh, I see. You uh, you feel that I am not so, uh, well, should we say, straight-laced? No, of course you aren't. Mother's told me about you, and in any case, I've read Dr. Watson's story. Watson, my dear fellow? Your stories will land me in serious trouble one of these days. Uh, what are you suggesting Mr. Holmes can do for you, Miss Norton? Get the letters back for me. <laughs> but how? Steal them, of course. Well, my dear, I hardly think we... No, 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 my dear Watson, don't be shocked. Oh, Miss Norton is a forthright girl like her mother before her. It's most refreshing. <laughs> Mr. Holmes, you can't say you won't help me. No, I don't think that I can say it. In any case, I have a slight personal score to settle with Mr. Lytton Stanley myself. He's rude and has no understanding bees. But how are you going to steal the letters? That problem requires a little thought, old chap. I can tell you how to do it, Mr. Holmes. Oh, really? This is delightful, my dear. You explain the problem and also the way of solving it. How easy a detective's work might be if all clients were equally helpful. Tell me, what is your plan? Tomorrow is a servant's half day off at Mr. Lytton Stanley's. He'll be alone there during the afternoon. How do you know that fact? My maid was keeping company, as they say, with Divas, the butler, when I was staying there a few weeks ago. She found out everything from him. My letters are kept in a filigree box in his desk. With your enterprise, my dear, I'm surprised that you didn't try and open the desk yourself. I did. But it's very sturdy and has a combination lock. Oh. However, I'm sure that you and Dr. Watson can think of some way of getting the letters, particularly if Mr. Lytton Stanley's alone in the house. Uh, we shall do our best, Miss Norton. Promise me one thing, though, both of you. Oh, what's that? Don't read the letters, will you? I, I, I'm really rather ashamed of writing them. Oh, of course we won't, my dear child. You're both so sweet to me. How can I thank you? Thanks would be a little <laughs> premature, but um, you could do us a favor. Of course. What is it? Your mother had a beautiful voice, I recall. I, uh, I wonder if you inherit her talent. I do sing, though I've never done so professionally, like mother. And I've never played the violin professionally. But perhaps, uh, between us, we could give Watson a little concert. What a delightful idea. We can't do anything until tomorrow, anyway. Uh, what would you like to sing? <laughs> Songs my mother told me. Oh, really, really remarkably appropriate. Days long seldom from Charming. Tonight music, and tomorrow a touch of daylight robbery. Dear old Watson, 
Your disguise is really excellent. Oh, I must confess I'm a little apprehensive. Hi, old chap. There's no need to be, I assure you. You, as Dr. Hamish, and I, as the Reverend Albie, are calling on Mr. Stanley ostensibly in search of a contribution for my charity hospital that you are in charge of. What could be simpler? Well, what made you decide on, on the role of a clergyman? It should simplify our entrance to the house. No, hmm? I must confess that a rare touch of sentiments prompted the choice of my disguise. Well, how does sentiment enter into it? Oh, surely you remember that it was in the role of a simple-minded nonconformist clergyman that I once attempted to deceive Miss Norton's mother. That's right. <laughs> I'd forgotten. That woman really fascinates you, ah, she you? does, old chap. <laughs> Irene Adler was... Uh, one woman I've always regarded with unbounded admiration. Even though she was a criminal. But the matter of this, come on, old fellow. Are you ready? Yes. You have the equipment I mentioned to you? In my pocket? Let's be off, old chap. Let's be off. He's home while the devil doesn't he answer the door. Come, 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 my dear Reverend Appleby, for a parson, your language is, is hardly appropriate. I'm sorry, Dr. Hamish. Here comes someone. Yes? Miss Stitton Stanley. That's my name. And mine is Appleby, and this is my friend, Dr. Hamish. I'm proud to meet you, sir. I've heard a great deal about you. What can I do for you? If we could come in for a moment, I'll explain our mission. Uh, very well. Come into the study. We are raising a subscription list for a charity hospital at Paddlewake, just across the Downs. You're a prominent resident here, and we thought that you'd like to donate a few guineas. I'm really not very interested. I've given as much to charity this year as I can afford. Well, it's a fine call, sir. I'm giving my medical services three days a week, and the Reverend Appleby is donating his services too. Who else has contributed to this fund? All your neighbors, sir. We just came from the bee farm over the downs. The owner, Mr. Holmes, gave us a check for five guineas. Hmm. Holmes gave you five guineas, did he? Aye, a very nice gentleman, Mr. Holmes. We're proposing to name a ward in the hospital after him. Is this list of subscribers going to be published in the paper? Oh, yes, oh, yes, Mr. Litton Stanley. I'll give you ten guineas. Ten oh, guineas? Thank That's you, sir. Very kind of you, sir, I'm sure. Aye, I'll uh, get my checkbook. It's in this desk. Right. Now, uh, uh, who do I make this check payable to? Hold him still. Very neat, Watson. Chloroform doesn't take long, does it? Back, little old fellow. He's lying over the desk. That's it. Is the filigree box in there? Uh huh. Here it is. Splendid. Holmes, don't open it. You promised that you would. I just wish to make sure. Make sure. Who was there, Mr. Sherlock Holmes? Oh, no, don't move. I have a revolver, and don't turn round. Place the box on the table, Mr. Holmes. Put your hands up, gentlemen, both of you. That's right. I know that voice. It's Devers, the butler. Uh, quite correct, sir. Well, Devers, you need to point a revolver at us. Your, your master ninja. I'm not in the least interested in my master's health, Dr. Watson. In fact, if he were dead, I should be delighted. And what are you up to, Devers? I'm taking advantage of a situation, sir. I've been trying to open that desk for weeks. After such kindness on your part, sir, I hate to seem ungracious, but I'm dreadfully afraid I shall have to kill you, uh, to kill both of you. Dr. Watson's story will continue in just a second, so I'm just going to remind you that good food always tastes better when served with good wine. 
And if you like a red wine, say with steak or meat of any kind, you'll love Petri California Burgundy. If you'd rather have a white wine, say with chicken or fish, then by all means get Petri California Sauterne. Oh, and look, if opinion is divided in your family, if some of you like a red wine and some like white, the answer's obvious. Don't buy one, buy two. Remember that, huh? Don't buy one, buy two. But do buy Petri. Then you know it's good. Well, Doctor, that was a fine place to break off your story with the butler pointing a gun at your backs and you and Sherlock Holmes with your hands above your heads. What happened next? I know at least you didn't get killed. You wouldn't be sitting here in California tonight telling me the story. Elementary, my dear Mr. Bartell, but supposing I take you back in the story to the point where I left off. Well, all right, then. Take me back, Doctor. Take me back. Very well. We stood there, Holmes and I, our hands above our heads. As Devers said... Grateful I am that you opened the desk for me. After such kindness on your part, sir, I hate to seem ungracious, but... I'm dreadfully afraid I'm going to have to kill you both. Uh, Because I dislike to appear stupid at such a melodramatic moment, but why is it necessary to kill us? Uh, For months, I have been waiting for an opportunity to steal the Kitman Jar Emerald, and now you have done it for me, sir, and presented me with a perfect alibi. A Kitman Jar Emerald? Oh, come now, Miss Holmes, you know the treasures in this house as well as I do. Apart from the Emerald, there's a superb Cellini that would fetch a fine price in the right market. We aren't here after any valuables, my good man. Please don't call me your good man, Dr. Watson. It's patronizing and untrue. In any case, sir, whether you were here after the valuables or not makes no difference. I've caught you both red-handed. You're completely in my power, gentlemen. You're going to steal the treasures, I suppose, and then pretend that we were responsible. Exactly, sir. Mm -hmm. I shall kill you both, secrete what objects appeal to me, and when my master regains consciousness, I shall explain that I found three men burgling the house, that I killed two of them while the third got away with the loot. Who will be able to doubt my word? To be regarded as a hero. (laughs) I might even have my salary raised. Uh, Watson, I'm afraid this is the end, old chap. Sordid way to die. Drop the back like a coward. Adiba's. At least do us the courtesy of allowing us to face the firing squad, will you? Very well, gentlemen. Turn round. But don't try any tricks. One last request. What is it, sir? I'm beaten and I admit it. I'm getting old, but in my heyday I've crossed swords with some of the greatest criminals in Europe. My life has been attempted many times, but I've always escaped. If this is to be my swan song, at least give me the privilege of shaking the hand of a man who has at last bested me. Well, sir, I feel that I'm stepping a little out of my station, but I... Suppose the situation is unusual. I hope you don't object to the left hand, sir. I'll keep the revolver in my right. Very well, Devers. You are. Goodbye, Mr. Sherlock Holmes. Goodbye, Devers. And my congratulations. For... My congratulations for being a fool. Well done, Holmes. Maybe getting old, Watson, but I've not lost my skill at Barrett, too. Oh, he went over your shoulder in a flash. Fortunately, the bullet went wide. Where is he, Watson? Struck the desk as he fell. Yes, he gashed his head. It's not serious. He'll be unconscious for a while. Good, but I think we'll take the precaution of closing this desk drawer. I don't want him to be exposed to further temptation when he comes to. Here we are. Well, shouldn't we get in touch with the police, Holmes? Please, great Scott, no, old fellow. After all, we're burglars and we're in disguise. Two facts that would be hard to explain satisfactorily. No, we must act to the bee farm as soon as possible. Yes, I suppose you're right. Miss Norton will be waiting for us there and tell her what happened. Poor girl, I'm afraid she's in for something of a shock. Mr. Holmes, Dr. Watson, I'm so glad to see you back again. Did you get the filigree box? Yes, Miss Norton, here it is. But, Holmes, I didn't know that you... Watson, uh, why not open it, Miss Norton? Well, I... I uh... Open it, my dear. There may not be love letters inside it, but there's a note. Oh. 
Why don't you read it to us? <laughs> Let this be a warning, Norton. Crime does not pay. If you don't believe me, ask your mother. Sincerely, Sherlock Holmes. Mr. Holmes, you knew my secret all the time. Not all the time, but I realized it as soon as I'd opened the filigree box. What on earth are you talking about? Miss Norton was under the impression that she could use me as a cat's paw, as a dupe to commit a burglary for her. I still don't understand, Holmes. You will remember she asked us to promise not to open the box. Yes, but you did, sir, just before the fellow held us up with a revolver. What was inside the box? An impressive green stone which I knew to be the Kitmanjar Emerald. But where is the emerald now? I slipped it back into Mr. Lytton Stanley's desk and locked it. Brought the box here because I wanted to see your expression, Miss Norton, as you opened it. Great Scott, and I thought you were falling thing in trouble. You have to save yourself, young lady. But I'm terribly sorry, Mr. Holmes, terribly sorry. It seemed like a wildly exciting idea, but I didn't really mean to steal it. No, of course not. No, no, of course you didn't. Don't need to steal it for you. Miss Norton, I'm convinced you knew that your mother once outwitted me, and you presumed to think that you could do the same. I should turn you over to the police. Please don't, Mr. Holmes. You can't do that. I certainly could. But I'm not going to for two reasons. First, you're young and impressionable, and this will teach you a lesson. And in the second place, I have a strange admiration for your mother. But I warn you, Miss Norton, that you have had a narrow escape. A very narrow escape. Mr. Holmes, before I go, there's one favor I want to ask oh, you. Really? What is it? Could I keep this filigree box with your note inside it? It would be a reminder all my life of how we met. Ah. What do you say, Watson? Well, it isn't your box to give, Holmes. That's true, old fellow. That's quite true. But I fail to see how we can return it now without disclosing our own share in the attempted robbery. In any case, I don't like Mr. Lytton Stanley. Think we might indulge in a little petty larceny without uh, feeling too guilty. Very well, Miss Norton. You may keep the box. I shall always treasure it. Thank you. Goodbye, Dr. Watson. Don't think too badly of me. Mm -hmm. Goodbye. Good night, Mr. Sherlock Holmes. You know, Holmes, I must say you were surprisingly lenient for that girl. You suppose her mother put her up to the whole thing? That possibility had occurred to me, old fellow. And yet I have a feeling that... Come in. Doors open. Were you expecting anyone? No. Scott, it's Lytton Stanley. Good evening, sir. This is an unexpected honor. Sherlock Holmes, we haven't been the best of friends, I know. But you've got to help me now. I'm in serious trouble. Oh, indeed, sir. Won't you sit down? This is my friend, Doc Watson. How, How do, do, you do you do? And now, sir... Now, what is your trouble? I've been robbed, Holmes. Robbed? What was stolen? Well, my greatest treasure, the Kitmanjar Emerald, removed from his case, and then mysteriously returned loose in my desk afterwards. But there's a priceless Cellini missing. Have you, uh... Have you any idea who the burghers might be? Oh, it was a gang, I'm sure of that. A couple disguised as a clergyman and a doctor came into the house on the pretext of raising money for some hospital. And they overpowered me with chloroform. Oh, dear me, dear me. How very unpleasant for you. Yes, sir. When I came to, I found my butler was lying beside me in a pool of blood. The brave fellow had wrestled with the thieves, but they got away. And he's in the hospital now. Holmes, you've got to help me. The Kitmanjar Emerald was returned, you say, but uh, a Cellini is missing. Yes. It's an exquisite filigree box in which I'd kept the emerald. A filigree box? Yes, it's a genuine Cellini. 
It's worth several thousand pounds. Holmes, you must help me solve this business. I'm sorry, Mr. Lytton Stanley, but I'm afraid I can't help you. I've retired. <clears throat> yes, and I intend to remain in retirement. <laughs> Good night, sir. Oh, but I'll pay you any fee within reason. My decision is final, sir. Good night. Oh, I might have known I wouldn't get any help from you. Holmes, she fooled you. Yes, yes, the little devil. She knew that box visit Cellini all the time. You don't seem very angry with her. Ah, uh, I should be, but I'm not. What splendid audacity. What a superb nerve the child has. But you must get the box back from her. I shall, Watson. I shall. Or rather, I shall persuade Devers to do it for me. That's the price of our silence. But how can he get it back? Remember that he walks out with Miss Norton's maid. I'm certain that when he explains his predicament, he can prevail upon her to steal the box from her mistress so that it may be returned to its rightful owner. That's a good idea. By George Holmes. Miss Norton's a chip off old pluck, all right. Yes, Watson, she is, and it makes me wonder. What about? <laughs> I wonder, my dear chap, how long I can remain in retirement. Such a worthy antagonist at large, it's a challenge. It's an irresistible challenge. You know, Dr. Watson, I, I just can't get over the way you and Mr. Holmes let that girl, uh, Irene, was that her name, pull the wool over your eyes. Why, she really twisted you around her little finger. Well, Mr. Patel, I don't like to make extremely positive statements, but I'm sure that if you were in my shoes, Irene would not only have twisted you around her little finger, but she'd have had you rolling about in hoops and standing on your head. <laughs> you mean she was that beautiful? Mr. Patel, she was so beautiful that she'd make you forget all about Petri wine. Dr. Watson, no girl is that beautiful. Oh, how young you really are. Well, maybe so, but there are lots of pretty girls in this world and only one Petri wine. Well, Dr. Watson, what story are you planning to tell us next week? Well, now, next week, Mr. Bartell, is the day before Christmas. So I'm going to tell you an adventure that took place many years ago and involved Holmes and myself in one of the most fantastic Christmas Eve situations in which we ever found ourselves. I think you like the story. I call it The Night Before Christmas. Well, listeners, as you can hear, I'm mostly back and I'm loving it. So good to be back on my feet and about 90% there again. I'm going to be hitting up some more stories, doing some more detective work, and spending more time researching, I think, to gather up some more fresh blood. I mean, stories for you lovelies. Remember, if you like what I do, subscribe on your podcasting platform. If you want to hear me shout for joy, leave an iTunes review. And lastly, if you want to support me, then visit my Patreon page and show me some love there. Listeners, it's time to thank the legends that do just that and support me. First up is my interstellar, Stella star, Maya, aka Queen of the Cats. Thank you, mate, for your crazy awesome tier of support. Thanks to you, I can cover serious expenses regarding the show, and in a number of months, I can cover off all subscriptions of the year thanks to you, mate. Seriously, Maya, not an episode gets uploaded where I'm not thinking how lucky I am to have your support. Thank you so, 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 so much. You're a superstar. And my white two warlord, Lesosaurus Rex, <laughs> so good to be back and thanking lovelies like yourself with my voice intact. Sure, I still get the cost, but boy, yo, it's grand to be able to say thank you, Lesa for being a star and supporting the show. You are epic. 
Thanks to you, mate, I can explore other avenues when it comes to improving the show, and I finally can get back on the saddle again for my side projects. Yes! Looking forward to it, mate. Cheers, there's a all made possible thanks to your lovely self. And my second white tea warlord, Paige Kramer, that ever so knowledgeable queen of facts, mate, it's always awesome to hear from you. And in this busy, chaotic environment, it's awesome to receive your messages and learn something new. That's the great thing about my supporters. They really are givers, every single one of you. And simply getting the chance to know people like you better, Paige, and chat to you is a gift in itself. Thank you so much, Paige. And that goes for every awesome supporter of this show. You're all very special. And next up, the enforcers that fuel this Earl Grey train. I'm lucky to have. Chad Warren, Just Heather, Juicebox Andy, Peter Raffaele, Tasha Moncrief, Dolphin and Cow, Michelangelo, Yacone, Tea Time Drinker 1, and Divided by Zero. Thank you all for being yourselves. You know, awesome. And I'll see you Wednesday, you epic people, with a fresh new set of stories. And as always, mates, till next week. Me.